I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at KindFarmsInc, all one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is RYAN10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today on An Actor Despairs, we have an incredibly exciting episode with actress Sonia Walger. You know we're crushing it as Molly Cobb on For All Mankind right now. You've seen her in other things like Lost, Sleeper Cell, CSI New York, just to name a few. She's so incredible. I discovered her so early on that show, Sleeper Cell. She blew me away. She went to Oxford. She's got a podcast that we dig into. You guys have to check it out. I got so much love for Sonia. It meant so much to having her on. Sonia, I love you. Here it is. Sonia Walger, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. It's such an immense honor to have you on. I've I've been such a big fan of yours for a really long time, you're probably not going to believe me when I say, but I uh, I discovered you on Sleeper Cell because I I don't know when when I was like when I was young that like Showtime was kind of my thing and I uh-huh. love that show and like your relationship with Darwin and and that show I, I I don't think it ever got the justice it deserved and you you Thank really you. impressed me you know because I, I I talk about this a lot with actors on this podcast and sometimes the actors that I love most aren't the ones that are the series regulars in a series that I discover. They're the ones that come in and they're able to, to, to make, you know, a, a, such a unique stamp on their character. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I I hate using the word little, but what, what, what minimal amount of time they might have on screen and, and your energy, you, you came in like a Titan. (laughs) I was like, I was like, this, this woman's amazing. And then following your careers, you know, CSI, you've done so many amazing things. And, you know, now for all mankind, I mean, it's, it's another thing I've spoken about. And sometimes I feel like it's, it really, it really bums me out that we live in such a content saturated time because for all mankind is one of the most exceptional shows I've ever seen. And and what you do with Molly Cobb, it is some of the finest work I have ever seen from an actor in my life. And I, if, if I were in charge of all the, uh, all the bullshit that goes into awards, (laughs) you you would, you would win every single one of them. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, we, uh, 
people talk about writing, you know, for strong female characters and, and doing that. And, and that's great, but you know, a lot of the times it's forced and it doesn't work. And what those writers were able to do and what you, you, you just rose to the occasion. And I just, it, it, it impressed me so much. It was, it was a coup. It was like watching lightning strike over and over again. And I just, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to, I swear, I'm not here to like, I'm not getting paid for this, but I'm just such a big fan. And I have so much gratitude for the work that you do. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to pay you for all of that. We'll send this to the FYC. Your show is, 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 uh, is not well named. There is nothing despairing about being an actor on this show. Uh, yeah, no, just... it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a funny inverted title, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 I, I'm sure we'll get into despair because we're going to sure. start from the beginning. You yeah. Okay. Right. I did. I grew up in London and I uh, went, I, I do not come from an acting family. No one in my family does it or has anything to do with it really. And I went to a boarding school and quite academic sort of rigorous institutions. And then I went to Oxford and I studied. So if it's okay, we'll, we'll go yeah. even slow. So, so like what, what do you, if you don't mind, what did your yeah. parents do? Oh, so my mom's a nursery school teacher and, oh. and has been my whole life and has her own school. And uh, my dad, oh, it's always such a tricky one. My dad um, died a few years ago. My dad was from Argentina. I'm so sorry. And, thank you. And was a, a sort of crazy adventurer who did um, so many things that I'm actually writing a book about all the things my oh, father that's did. So beautiful. Um, I don't know that it will be beautiful, but it will be interesting. That's for sure. So it, he's he was a crazy, um, larger than life human being who did many things and travelled and and got into trouble and went to jail and had multiple children and multiple marriages and lived all over the world. So I had this very steady mum who um, remarried, and my stepfather is a very steady, lovely man who works in insurance. And so I had this very dual life of either being with my mom and my stepdad and then they went on to have my little brother wow. and that was a, a sort of metronome of, of um, familiarity and, and a very boundaried safe place and then I would go and visit my dad and have madcap adventures with him oh that's so amazing you it was a bit of buzz. dual world I I'm, I'm also a child of of divorce so I know what it's like to have those both families and and talk to me you know because Obviously, live, living in London is the, is the cultural epicenter of, of theater and, and arts and, and capitalism, you know. So mm -hmm. talk to me about, you know, what was your early relationship to the arts? Did you grow up going to the West End and seeing plays? Like where did I this did. My, my parent, uh, I, I was always been a big reader. And so books have always been my the thing that I love most. And I think as an only child, my brother didn't arrive till I was 13. So it was a long time on my own. So uh, books were really the thing that I loved most. And then movies, and my mom would always make sure that even if we didn't have money, we had money to go to the theater. So we'd go and see, you know, My Fair Lady or whatever the musical was. Uh, Starlight Express, I remember, was. Did you did that come here? It was a musical on roller skates. It was I'm sure it did. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a huge thing. So, yeah, we used to go to the theater and then it was something my dad and I would do on our own because I think it's the kind of it's an easy thing for a divorced dad to do with his kids to, yeah. to the movies. It's so it's particularly if it's a girl and you're not sharing sport. Uh, I think a movie is such a sort of easy thing to do. So we would go to this little movie theater in London that only showed 
kids' movies. Oh. And we would go and watch. And it was amazing. And it was all red leather and gilt. Like, it was a proper old theatre yeah. that had just been converted into a kids' movie theatre. So we'd go and watch the Aristocats and um, Disney movies and things like that together. And then I would stay with him at weekends. And in the mornings, he would invariably be hungover and want to sleep in. Yeah. And he only had a handful of movies. And one of them was... Um, High Society, that Grace Kelly musical. So I would sit and watch Grace Kelly. I would watch High Society on a loop. I knew that movie, like, word for word, aged, like, eight or nine. Like, too young to be watching (laughs) But, like, nose pressed to the screen, just trying to become Grace Kelly. Like, I couldn't get enough of this woman. So, um... So my influences were mixed in terms of it wasn't like so you you were interested in musicals as well then yeah but I can't sing a note so yeah me either <laughs> it's um, okay <laughs> that, that, that was that was no, nobody was in danger of, of me becoming and in, getting into musical theater but that was that I, I had the same tastes as every you know I love Disney movies and then like I said I had this strange fascination with Grace Kelly that started at quite a young age. Um, yeah, so so that was my. You know, you don't know what you know until later. I didn't know I was growing up in a cultural epicenter. I was just growing up in London. And yeah, you were living your life. And yeah. and, and talk to me because uh, you know I, I've spoken to a lot of actors that grew up in the UK. R- Rufus Sewell's a friend, Jason Isaacs, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, you know I'm I'm curious because there there's uh, so many amazing youth theater groups and and things like that that just don't really exist in America the way they do there. Did you at a certain point like? Have that an imperative to talk to your parents or like, hey, I, I want to pursue this? I did. I, I joined the, um, I, like I said, I went to a very, oh, it froze up. Can you still hear me? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My cool. Wi-Fi. Sorry. Okay. Great. Um, I went to boarding school and I didn't love my boarding school. It was very academic and I was desperately homesick a lot of the time. But I had this wonderful acting teacher and I had these drama lessons once a week with her. And they were a place where I felt very seen and very loved. And um, and so she encouraged me a lot. Uh, I had the academics down. Like I, I never really, I was lucky. I didn't particularly struggle academically. So, um, but the acting felt like a, soft place like where somebody actually was interested in how I was feeling rather than how my exams were going um so she encouraged me and I did the National Youth Theatre I got into that you got in the National Youth Theatre you can't just skate over that that's such a huge accomplishment I guess it is yeah yeah that was a cool thing so I got into the National Youth Theatre but I felt like a fish out of water I felt so exposed and um if you don't mind, how old were you at this time? So I think I must have been fourteen or fifteen. Oh, so you're really still coming into your own, is a yeah. yeah. And I felt very acutely aware of my privilege, and that I came from a posh boarding school, Got and it. most of the kids there didn't, and and I felt like I spoke differently. Yeah, I, I just I felt incredibly self conscious, and I didn't have the equipment to um, brazen it out or or defy, but I also knew enough to be like, well, I can't pretend I go to the local comprehensive because I don't. So I didn't really participate. I I found, I I did it, but I I found it excruciating to be honest. And then, and then I went to Oxford and I majored in English literature there. Was academia always, you know, was it, did that come from your parents or were you just naturally a, a good student? 
I think it's like I say, like I, I learned to read very young. This is the benefit of having a nursery school teacher for your Which will, will come into hand when we talk about your podcast because you got a yeah. killer podcast. Thank you. Better than me. No, no. Yeah. Just it's very, very niche, my podcast. But anyway. So, so is mine. True. True. I think niche is good. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I learned to read and so I, I read voraciously and I loved reading. And so um going to Oxford to, to I mean, yes, there was a lot of exams and all of that to sit through but it it didn't feel impossible because really what it meant was just doing a ton of reading and writing so essays lit- literature was your major very, right um yes exactly That's and then i did plays on the side there was a little group of us who really wanted to do this professionally yeah uh, we all knew that we wanted to become either producers or directors or actors so we made our own theater group company and we oh. put on a play every term while we were there uh and it was great because we got to cast it amongst ourselves and i'd be like yeah sure i want to be the lead i want to be our cardinal or i want to do the cherry orchard i want to do you know you just i just got to pick my role wow. it was amazing it's never been that it's been downhill ever since so <laughs> so who was, was curating the catalog of be, work between us between ourselves we would usually do it but um often it was the director who went on to direct a ton of plays and yeah did had great success at Edinburgh and is now a novelist, but um, he, he was, he was usually who would pick the plays and then he'd cast us and then we just did a play. So Oxford were these three very, very happy years where I got to read everything I wanted. I had a lovely boyfriend and I just did a play every six weeks. So, um, is that where you feel like you, you Sonia found your voice as an artist or started to at least? I think I did, and I think I started to feel comfortable saying out loud, this is what I think I want to do. I think there was some disappointment, or if not disappointment, then um, consternation in my family. I think they were a bit like, okay. I think they thought it was a bit like modeling. I think yeah. they it was like, oh, um, this is cute. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. You'll, you'll get over that. And then, yeah. you'll be- then you'll become the journalist or the lawyer that you were meant to be. And I, I kept being like, no, I think this is what I, this is what I want to do. Anyway, so, so I, I had a, I had the great fortune of doing this play. I did Look Back in Anger while I was oh, at Oxford wow. in our last year. And a bunch of agents came up to see the play in the, back in those days, and maybe it still happens now, agents would actually bother coming to Oxford and Cambridge to watch plays to see if they could cherry pick you know, the next Kate Winslet. Even though they weren't like a guild hall or a uh, exactly. erotic, they still came to those? They came to Oxford wow. and Cambridge. And they made it's obviously the, the Harvard, you know, one of the greatest schools in the world, if not the greatest, you know. It, it was, um, yeah. I'm so, so anyway, jealous of, of, of your experience. I love it. That's incredible. It was, it was amazing. But all of this is to lead me to the point that it was um, – so I, I was lucky enough to get to choose. I had a few offers to represent me. And so I got to pick which agent I wanted. And and then I was like, now leave me alone because I want to get my degree. So I don't want to work yet. And he how, Oh, so how, how far along were you when you got rep? I still had, I still had another six months to go. Okay, so it was ready. in your final year. It was in my final year, exactly. And I, I wanted to sit my exams and, and do it right. Um, so I told him to pipe down and wait for me, which I think he was stunned at. And then it had all been, I'm not going to say easy, but everything that I had wanted to go, to get or to do and I had set my sights on and I had worked incredibly hard 
and I had made it happen. There had been a correlation between yeah. effort and result. And then I left Oxford and I was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's do a movie. And uh, that is not how it works. Yeah. Well, not how it works. <laughs> For me. Unless your dad's and Clint Eastwood, suddenly, usually not. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. I was just met with this freefall, this like, I mean, talk about despair. Mine kicked in the day I left Oxford. I was yeah. like, but nobody told me. Yeah. Nobody all these people for all these years have prepared me for college and nobody prepared me for leaving. Nobody prepared me for the fact that effort and result are no longer necessarily, at least in this career, linked and that you can be excellent in an audition. You can, you can dazzle them. You can have, make them weak in the audition and still not book the job. And, yeah. and that took two years for me to really begin to wrap my head around. I, I took it so, so personally. And because I didn't have family in the business, because I hadn't been to drama school and witnessed people struggling in showcases and the talk of agents and all of that, I, I had bypassed all of that. And mine had, up until that point, arrived with, as I say, sort of some relative ease. So it was startling. I mean, it was genuinely despairing free fall for, for a while and I worked I mean I did repertory theatre and I did plays here and there and I did a little bit part on the BBC and I started to sort of get known but I, I didn't like break out with a role in the way that I had yeah. truly expected I was going to it yeah. was astonishing to me it really no was. I, I I think it's a, a real disservice you know I went to NYU some of these institutions who particularly with what uh -huh. they charge and how they prepare yeah. yourself because the whole time they tell you how lucky you are to be there which is true mm -hmm. but what they don't tell you is how to survive and adjust to the right. to leaving the gate right. and so talk to me even though you you did have the agent and you did have the rep in mm -hmm. and you had a home base in London how did you buoy yourself through this despair and this madness? I, th I think I did what I've always done since, which is I quickly went, oh, this can't be the only thing I do. If my, not just financially can it not be the only thing I do, that was very clear. But if my entire emotional well-being is caught up in this one thing, it's like falling in love with one guy and only that guy can call. It's, yeah. it's just disastrous. And uh, I, I quickly realized that, you know, I, I was going to need to, f to drink from other wells in order yeah. to feel fed. And as I say, books have always been my thing. So that was, I, I felt like I'm only equipped to like read a book and tell you what I think of it. My, my career, my, my degree has qualified me for nothing else. So I got a job at the Royal Court Theatre in London at, wow. um, and I read plays for them. So they get, I mean, back in those days, they were getting, you know. Plays that they were interested in workshopping or developing. Yes, but they yeah. were just getting unsolicited submissions, thousands of them. A year. And, and they do read them like agents do. A hundred percent. So yeah. they would pay people like me to read the plays and then write reports as to whether or not they should be done or not. And uh, so I did 
I read plays for the royal court. And then to make money, unlike most of my friends who waitressed, my mum ran a nursery school. So I would go and work in the nursery school. So I've never waited a table, but I have taught many children to read. That's that's the trade-off that I've... I think both are just as equally as hard, if not, you know, teaching children is is a a patience that, you know, waiting tables is not required totally. So I respect that so much. And, And I'm curious, you know, because, you know... Talk to me about your relationship to America because it's different for everyone. Because I know in the UK, they tend to mythologize the aristocracy and they do these great period costume dramas. And, you know, only now within the last, you know, 10 years, you know, shows like Peaky Blinders and, and other shows are really starting to deviate from that. And, and I love it. Whereas in America, we mythologize our, our working class. Was there ever, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you, you talk about Grace Kelly and, and Hollywood, you know, was there ever this idea of like, I, I could always go to America or was that not really no. on your it didn't feel that way. It felt like I was just going to be a working London actor. Hollywood felt like something other people did. Yeah. Um, and I, I certainly wasn't brave enough just to go and try it out without being invited, as it were. Like yeah. it, it felt um, far too strange and foreign. And I, and I didn't know anybody in America. I mean, I didn't know a single person in LA. Um, so I remember one of the first sort of bigger jobs that I got was it was for Hallmark and it was Noah's Ark and John Voight played Noah and um, me and Emily Mortimer and Sidney Poitier, who was Sidney Poitier's daughter, um, said played the three daughters of Noah. And um, it is a really horrendous piece of work. But, <laughs> so, we all start somewhere. Oh my God. You should see my first movie. It makes no sense. <laughs> it, it, uh, it was shocking. Yeah. But it was an amazing job because we all went, that was the three daughters and then De- Alexis Dunstoff, Jonathan Cake and Mark Baisley, all of whom are fabulous working actors, all played the three sons. So we were known as the six pack. All six of us got on so well and we all went to australia and we lived in australia for four months shooting noah's ark wow hallmark shot in australia i would not have guessed that yes and they paid us a fortune and we had dms that we didn't even know what to do with and it was an amazing amazing experience but before we went to australia they flew us all to la to rehearse this was back in the days when there was money i was gonna say you never get that wow no 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 that's what i mean like this was my first big job where i was like oh I could live off this for like a year. I could <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, this is great. Yeah. Um, so we all arrived in LA and I remember Sid, Sydney obviously lived here already, but Emily and I were put up in the same hotel and then we were driven into work every day. And Em went off one morning to go and do meetings. And I remember it because I remember it, I thought it had a capital M. Like it just sounded so important. I'm yeah. going to do meetings. And she went off and she looked like Audrey Hepburn. She came downstairs. She had huge black sunglasses on and this beautiful little black sundress and her short little black crop. And I remember just sort of lying by the pool, feeling pale and blobby in a swimsuit, holding a sort of overpriced cocktail, watching Emily go off to do her meetings, thinking, oh, I'll never do those. I mean, it's. I wonder who she's going to meet. Like, yeah. I wonder what's... It felt so mysterious and so other and so something that I would never be a part of. Anyway, cut to a few years later, I do a pilot. I I audition for a pilot for HBO called Mind of a Married Man. And amazingly, I get 
the job or I don't. They fly me back out for the screen test and they put me up in the same hotel that uh, we'd stayed in. I'd stayed in three years earlier with um Can so you I say what this, hotel it is? Is it still? Yes. Just- you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the... Um, it's in Century City. It's the is it the highest? Oh, the one that's Wisconsin? under the the one that's under construction. Or? It probably is. I think so. It's across from CAA. It's yes. It's yeah, on, I, I know that, that one well. Yeah, that yeah, one. And yeah, it's on yeah. Ave, Avenue, Avenue of the Stars. Stars. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh my god, I'm on Avenue of the Stars. This is the best sign in the world. Yeah. But it was just so fun. This like difference of being back in the same hotel and this time, I am here for meetings and I and I audition for this pilot and I and I got the pilot so then I came out here and shot Mind of the Married Man and then it ran for two years so that was what brought me to America that was how I got here it was because I came I came with a show that's Um, and 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 then obviously I imagine that got you American representation that got me American uh that got me my fantastic agents who I've been with ever since I'm quite loyal so you have to fuck up quite badly for me yeah beautiful uh I love my gang and I've been with them. Yeah. Since day one. So they, they've, um, so that was how I got here. And as I say, it was so surprising to me. I, I, I was not the actor who I thought would move to LA. But and this is, uh, just so I'm getting a time. This is for- 20, 22, 21 years ago. And I've so, never gone So like 2000, that. right? At, right yes. around there. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I officially moved here on, uh, the day before September 11th. Oh my God. Yeah. Do you remember that day? Very, very vividly. I was staying with a girlfriend because I hadn't found a place to live yet. And I was supposed to start. We'd finished, uh, we'd finished the show. We'd finished shooting the show and we were supposed to start doing press for the show. And at that point, uh, HBO had wanted to fly me to New York to do my half of the press and at the last minute so I'd been sitting in London waiting to find out what whether I was taking a plane to LA or a plane to JFK and at the last minute they said actually just come to LA you can do all the press in LA and so I landed on the 10th yeah. and there was an earthquake as I landed the earth moved literally as I walked across the tarmac and I was like I'm gonna take this as a good sign uh <laughs> this is quite scary and then the next day I'm staying at my friend's house as I say I haven't even figured out where I'm going to live yet and my mum calls very very early in the morning and I'm mortified that she's that she hasn't understood there's an eight-hour time difference and you can't be ringing people's houses it's not my house and so I blearily answer the phone being like mum just go away you can't ring this early and mum's hysterical and screams, get under the bed. There's a plane, there's planes headed. She had the news before you did. Get under the bed. And she's, at that point, there were still planes headed to LA and they didn't know what was happening. So she's freaking out. I don't know what she's talking about. I get her off the phone because mum can be hysterical sometimes. So, and then I go downstairs and I make a cup of tea and I'll never forget, I was standing there and it was one of those kettles that sits on the stovetop and it whistles when it's ready. And this whistle... I'm standing there just bleary, and I'm also jet-lagged to hell because I've only just arrived. And this whistle happens, and it's as though it, like, snaps me out of my reverie or something. And I go and turn on the news, and that's when I – and as I turn on the news, I watch the first tower come down. It was, wow. a, it was a crazy way to arrive. It was yeah. a crazy way to arrive in the country that you think you've just moved to. 
And 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 you're still in production on the mind of Mary Matin at this point, or no? We've we've wrapped production, but we've okay. already been picked up for season two. So I'm already there, waiting to sort of start work on that. So that's cool. So you're here and you got a job, and yes. and I believe that that went for twenty episodes, right? Yes. Yeah. So then talk to me about, you know, you, you're in L.A., then you go back to the marketplace and yes. you're auditioning. And yes. at this point, you have some series regular credits and you got a movie. You know, what was your were you going out for more like guest stars, series re- no, reoccurring I, kind of things or what no, was, I was they, they they were gunning quite hard for me, my agent. So then after that, I think I, the next thing I did was coupling, which was yeah. at the time sort of the hot ticket they'd already made the pilot once then they decided to recast it it was nbc's answer to friends so this Uh, is just so for the actors listening because i i don't think a lot of you know i i'm i'm 31 so i guess i'm a millennial but the people below us the tiktok generation really in from about 2000 to really i would say 2011 it was it was premium content like HBO really mm-hmm. Showtime got in later, but then it was ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, it was, it was the major networks that dominated it. And yes. I don't think most people really yes. understand that, that, sure. that, you know, because now it's just like, you know, Apple's got content, Facebook, you know, everyone exactly. has a content company. So, yeah. so back then, you know, the, some of the network shows were quite good. So, so talk to me about that experience. Well- Coupling was um, based on an English show that had been incredibly successful. And I uh, knew about Coupling, but it had already come out after I'd left England. So I wasn't mm. devoted to it. I knew it by name, but I'd been sort of out of the loop for a couple of years doing Mind of the Married Man and living in L.A. Uh, anyway, they, are, they asked me to, to come and take over this role. And I made the mistake of not watching the English show, and I should have done. I learned my lesson. I've never done. Oh, it really? Talk, talk, talk to me. Why you think it? Because um, usually they say don't watch it, so you don't. You know. Yes. Yeah. And so. they didn't. They didn't want us to watch it. Um, but the <laughs> the uh, researcher in me knows better, and would mm. certainly know better now. Um, the same quality that n- allows me to pick a good book or allowed me to tell the Royal Court whether to do this play or not, I think would have told me not to even attempt to try and make this show for an American audience. Wow. Coupling was set in a pub and it was about a very promiscuous, uh, for an American taste at that time, 20 years ago, a promiscuous group of 20-year-olds. Promiscuous didn't even begin to, you, you wouldn't have even used that adjective to describe them in England. That's just how 20, 20 something year olds behaved. They yeah. sleep around, sleep with each other, one night stands. It's all, it's a very different world. It's a different attitude and relationship to alcohol. Yeah. It's a different, uh, sloppier attitude to sex. And I had been here long enough in the two and a half years I'd been there to know that the American attitude is more puritanical that a show set that if it wanted to be friends, friends with booze is how it was pitched. Yeah. thing um, That wasn't going to fly here, not on yeah. an NBC network. If HBO no. had done it, that would have been different. Yeah. But it was standards um, and practices and all. Yeah. I, yeah. I was like this, the minute I, so the show happened and it was canceled within, I, I forget how many episodes we did. Yeah. I don't even know if we did 12. And it was so unsurprising to me when I actually bothered to go back and check the source material. I was like, 
why did I not? And who yeah. thought this was ever going to work? Yeah. In what world was this going to work? Um, but it was a, it was tough because even with the, you know, intellectually understanding it, it's always gutting to be on a show that's cancelled. It's the only yeah. time, I think it's the only time it's happened to me that a show's been pulled off the air. I, I don't think that's, I don't think I've had that before or since. And it was, it just felt bewildering and it felt like failure and it felt like, what am I doing here? Yeah. Is this when I go back to England? Um, Did you have a yearning missing theater and doing those kind of things that just I deeply missed theater? And yeah. I, I missed, you know, again here, so much has changed in 20 years, but for me growing up in England, and I think the same is true now, there's enormous fluidity between the disciplines. So you aren't just, I don't know anyone who's just a theater actor. Every actor I know yeah. makes a living doing Radio plays, movies, TV, plays, play readings, workshops, you name it. I, I feel like New York actors have, have that kind of elasticity. But in L.A., I, I realized, like, oh, there's there's no theater here. Or what theater there is is so poorly regarded. Yeah. Any actor who does it has got one eye on their phone in case an audition comes in. Right. So it's, it's so sad. It's such yeah. a bummer. You know, I mean, they have... You know the the Geffen and and other things that are slowly, but right. you know, really, you got to go down to San Diego if you want to get anything. Totally. Yeah. So totally. what when the show ends and you go back again, you know, was there was there ever a moment of like, you know, what what am I doing in America? Should I go back or were you? Yeah, pretty- I did. I had I had plenty of of um, I had plenty of times where I was like, oh, I should go back to England, but practicalities kept me here apart from anything else all the work that I had done had only aired here again this was back you know the internet wasn't the sort of flourishing super self-tapes you know yeah 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 yeah. uh and also um you know these days for all mankind the apple show that I'm on now it airs simultaneously My, my mom watches it in England at the same time that I watch it here in LA whereas then I'd done two seasons of an HBO show and an ill-fated NBC show, none of which had aired in England. So as far as the English casting directors were concerned, I just disappeared for three years. Yeah. So it felt like going back there was going to be um, hard. I'd felt like I have much more profile here than yeah. I do back at home, so I should keep going. So, it, But it was lonely and difficult and bewildering and you know LA is as I'm sure many of your guests have said it, it's easy in a way it's easy to get invited to, to the openings and the parties and the premieres yeah. it's hard to make the friends that it's that's, it's it's full of snakes and flakes and I spent yeah. you know I'm I I only share this because I'm uh I'm coming up on five years sober and uh-huh. I I used to go to LA because I used to think it would help me get sober because there's mountains and palm trees sure. and then but you know there you know I feel like no matter you know I, I don't know how you feel but like I feel like no matter how well you're doing or not doing there you're constantly reminded yeah. it's just one business that dominates the city and it's just yeah it's so unhealthy for for me at least you know for yeah. somebody starting off and. You yeah. know, so so talk to me. Was it, you know, the the people and and socially that you were meeting? Was it people that you had worked with on sets and crew and cast, or I, did I you got, did you find a core group of friends? Were you or did that? I did. I got extremely lucky in that. Mind of the Married Man, my first job had two 
very important people in it for me. Kate Walsh was one of my earliest friends. And Kate, um, Kate was so unbelievably generous to me. Kate was just like, hi, you're new. You need friends. Meet my friends. You need a dentist. Here's my dentist. Wow. He's still my dentist. You need a doctor. Here's my doctor. She just over and over would scoop me up and um, shared her people with me. And then, you know, good people attract good people. So I had, uh, I, 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 I'm not going to say quickly, but steadily assembled a core group of people that I, I, I'm so proud of. I'm so, I'm so grateful for the friends that I have that I have here in LA. I really am. And, and yes, some of them are from the business, but a lot of them aren't, you know, a lot of them are musicians and teachers and, you know, different things. So I know you did, you know, CSI, you did about like 10 episodes on that. Did, did that film in New York? No, uh, that was CS. It was CSI New York, but we shot it here. Uh, and they just do the pickup exteriors. Yes. Exactly, Hollywood. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, talk to me by the time you got to sleeper cell, did you really start to feel like LA was, was a new home for you? Yes, I did. I mean, I felt like, I definitely felt like it was home and it felt like this is where I wanted to be. And this weather was so beautiful and moving. It felt like it was an easy place for me to get to visit both parents. My father yeah. lived in Argentina and my mom in London. So this way I felt like I was in a good triangle and able to sort of see everyone comfortably. Um, I was getting the interesting work and I was starting to realize that I really only wanted to do the interesting work and that I would rather... And you had the credits to, to be choosy in, in the best sense possible. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, it meant I, I went hungry and I borrowed money from yeah. parents and friends. And um, I, I have paid, as it were, for how picky I am. No question. And, I, and it's a constant debate. Even today, I'm like, I don't... I have to really, really want to do it. And I, these days I get to blame it on my kids. (laughs) I've got a, I got a play date for a month. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They won't, they won't survive without me. The truth of the kids would be fun. But, um, but back then I couldn't blame it on anything. It was just me. I'm, I'm, I'm an enormous snob about what I'll do. And I really will. I really only want to do things that I would want to watch. And, and that, and that puts the bar quite high. <laughs> well, that's that's so. I mean, you, you you're an incredible actress, and you deserve nothing but the best. So, you know, talk to me. You know, what while you're doing this, you get another show that you know I think is incredible, but didn't last. The Sarah Connor Chronicles. I mean, oh, yeah. how, how was that experience? Was that fun? That was great. That yeah. was lovely. Yeah, and that felt again. It was a sort of genre I didn't know and didn't know much about. Uh, yeah. It began as a guest star and. Uh, they it spun into a bigger thing um that's been a sort of history a pattern for me and then of course it brings me to lost of of um and molly cobb is another example of this I, I, I this is always the advice i sort of give to actors is there really is no such thing as a guest star if you show up and make yourself indispensable and are easy to work with and bring your full, full talent to bear. And you treat that role as though it were a series regular, as though you were one of those big trailers that you were walking in and out of. I guarantee you people notice. 
Yeah. People notice and they write for it and they want more of it. They want more of that energy around. They want more of that creativity on set. They want more of somebody who's respectful and shows up on time and knows their lines and who then brings a little extra to the role. That's not a guest star. That's that's what then becomes someone that people then want around. That's how you become a recurring and that's how you then become a series regular. So I... I am the walking, living, embodied proof that there is no such thing as a guest star, that you can make it whatever you choose to make it. Sarah Connor Chronicles is the first example of that. Lost is the next example of that. Penny was supposed to be, you know, an interesting sidebar. And Penny, uh, you know, is considered uh, one of the most sort of, what is one of the most beloved characters on that, on that show. And and what was it like, you know, working with JJ, Damien, you know, I mean, like, was that? You didn't, it didn't work with them. The writers were in the writers room in LA. Oh, yeah, okay. Just, I didn't know if they were hands-on, you no, know. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Uh, Jack Bender was the director who directed most of the episodes of Lost. He directed, I think, every one that I was in. Uh, everyone was on the island. So we, I just flew out to Hawaii and uh, did that. And and what I is did, that like, getting to film there, you know? like oh, the, It was, well... For most of the time, I would fly out to Hawaii and put on a polo neck and be in a studio and pretend it was London in 1997. So it, I would often fly to Hawaii and never, ever use an outdoor set because Penny wow. was not on the island. Yeah. Was one of the people in stuck in a space-time continuum, yeah. as you are. So, <laughs> so Penny was yeah, not exactly. that until Penny rescues people and then... That was when I got to go on a boat and go and be out, you know, off the coast of Oahu and, and rescue the cast in my in my boat. So uh, so it was amazing. It was a beautiful sort of um, punctuation to get to go and be in Lost, uh, to get to go and be in Hawaii. And yeah. I was, um, sorry, it's frozen again. Are you still seeing me? Oh, yeah. I'm seeing, yeah. Um, uh, and I was, great, great. I was doing... Um, Often, I mean, because I flew in and out for years, I, I was usually doing other shows at the same time. So I did, I was doing uh, Tell Me You Love Me, which was in In Treatment as well, another HBO. I did In yeah. Treatment and I did Tell Me You Love Me. Tell Me You Love Me, I was a series regular on. So we did 10 episodes of that. And then I flew to Hawaii a couple of times in between. Then I did a play on Broadway. I did Frost Nixon. And I had to, between a matinee and an evening show, I had to go to a studio at the bottom face of Manhattan somewhere and shoot a quick lost scene. No and way. Literally turn around and run back and do the evening show. That was a crazy day. And, and, and how was your experience doing Frost Nixon? We can't glance over that. I mean, you know, obviously it became the, the sensation it was as a film, but the, the play, what was that experience like doing uh, eight shows a, a week? It was amazing. And it was awful all at the same time. Wow. I, I, I didn't, um, I'd never done Broadway. I'd never done that before. My experience of theatre was England and, and smaller and more experimental. I was used to, I'm, I'm used to an audience you can almost see and yeah. you can smell them and you can hear them. Broadway, they're so far away and you're mic'd, although we, our director did not want us mic'd, so we used our own voices. But it feels very odd. It's both live and very remote. Um I didn't love eight shows a week, but I think that may have been because I didn't have enough to do. There's only one woman in the show and mm. it's Frost's girlfriend. Um, 
again, the clue is in the title. It's not a woman's play. Yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. about that. And uh, and I just finished doing Tell Me You Love Me, which where I had so much to do and it was eviscerating and hard and a, a beautiful poem of a role. So to go from that to this felt like I had just, I was just like, what am I, I've got nothing to do. Yeah, I was a step backward. Yeah, I can understand. Just just creatively. I'm aware of, you know, privilege of being able to say that. But I No, I I understand. I felt felt a bit starved creatively doing it. Were you able to enjoy New York at all, at least? Yeah, I love New York. I loved it. And I love being there. And I love being able to feel like, okay, I did this. I mean, I'd, I'd... it had long been on my to-do list, had been to spend some time in New York, to yeah. work in New York, uh, to do a play there. And I will, I will if anyone would have me, I would. I, I was going to say, would you do another, you know, and I, I'll cast you as the lead and we'll do it together. <laughs> I definitely would. I yeah. would do a play again. And again, you know, now that the kids are a bit older, it's hard. You miss every bedtime when you do a yeah. play. You know, you, you're gone all day when you're rehearsing and then you're gone all night when the play's up. So yeah. It's a it's a quite a thing to step into and quite a thing for a, for a family to take on. The impact on the family is is very real. Yeah, well, you know, obviously you, you did other things like Elementary and Power, and I we could talk project to project, but I do want to get to For All yeah. Mankind. Yeah. So talk to me, you know, because you know we're skipping ahead a few years now. Yeah. We live in a time where every anyone who owns tech or, you know, has kind of access to VC is doing content. And, Mm. you know, you're obviously studied literature and, you know, we talked about being selective about writing. Talk to me about how did this piece come your way? Did you know about the show or talk to me about how it all came together for you? No, I didn't know about anything. I knew that Apple was making content. That was all I knew. And then I got asked to go in and audition for, uh, this role, I had a character description saying that she uh, looked rough around the edges um, and was sullen and didn't like men. I mean, I thought something like that. And then uh, my agents privately said to me, dress down for this. Like, really Ooh. do not. This is this is not a beauty role. This is not. Yeah. So I did. I literally rolled out of bed and <laughs> buttoned up a shirt to the top. And uh, that was all I had was three sides. I mean, I yeah. have no idea. And I read the scene and I loved the woman. I loved the energy of her. And I got the role and then I started work almost immediately. And Did they have all the scripts beforehand? Right. No, they didn't at all. Wow. I joined them in episode episode three and they were still shooting episodes one and two. We'd block shoot, so they were just starting the first block. So the cast really only just met each other because they yeah. needed a pilot. They just rolled straight into the show. Um, they'd already done the table read without me, so nobody really knew what I was going to bring to the table. Wow. Were, there was a lot of like, okay, I hope she's good because Molly's a, a big part of yeah. episode three. Um, but I was supposed to die. Molly was supposed to die after a few episodes. Um, in the in the in the so, crash that ultimately spoiler alert, kills the other character, or yes, I think I think that yeah. was probably where Molly was supposed to go. Why, I you, don't you, know. I've never. I, I'm I've so never sorry. I didn't the mean writers it. on this. Yeah. No, not at all. Go ahead. 
Um, you know, there's another thing that's a reoccurring theme on this podcast, the separation between good acting and great acting and good acting are people that, you know, can make a living playing their personalities. And sure, that's fine. And great actors are people that make choices and bring nuances to the role that no other actor or actress could play that role. And what you did with Molly, nobody else could have done what you've done with that role. And it's, it's electric. And she comes in like, you know, this electric force and it's so beautiful, you know, talk to me, did, did the choices that you make and the, and the specificity, did you, did you work with someone on that? Or did you just, did it all come to you through the writing? What was your process for discovering Molly? Thank you. I, um, I'm always interested in, in, if, if, character presents one way then and if it's so overdeveloped as Molly's ferocity and her determination is and her stubbornness I'm always curious in what's that hiding so what's what's beneath that so I uh, I think my theory as much as I had one was that there was a child in Molly that just wanted to go to the moon yeah if you if you just scratched beneath the surface there was a little girl who had spent her whole life looking out the window, wanting to go to the moon. Yeah. And that this had hardened and calcified into this gruff exterior, this, I don't need anyone. If you all, I don't need men. I, I, I'm better than all of you, but that just beneath the surface is this, um, this little creature that just wants what she wants. Yeah. And, um, I think when I found that and then built on top of it, then it became about looking for opportunities to just show a glimmer of that. Where in this, where in this scene or in this episode does Molly feel safe and private enough for us to see, to see that, that child yeah. in her. Um, anyway, so that was my sort of, and then I did a ton of research on. I was going to say, you know, I'm going to throw a big word out. Very similar to, did you work with NASA and, and physicists to really understand the vernacular and the language? And you yeah. know, I mean, I mean, you sell it. Your performance is incredible. I I feel like you know you're a real astronaut. And you're in space. So I mean, talk to me about uh, understanding the physics I, of all. I this. would be a. I would be. I want to be clear. I would be a fucking. T- Terrible astronaut. I mean, appalling, appalling astronaut. Uh, I have in life zero care for detail. Uh, I hate instructions. If anything comes with instructions, I tear them up. I don't want. I, if it's not self-explanatory, it's annoying to me. I'm irritated with with my new share. All of these things, all the things that you absolutely have to be to be an astronaut, yeah. would make me an appalling astronaut. But. Um, Garrett Reisman is, Reisman is an astronaut who is a consultant on the show. He's, in fact, the first guest I have on my, I do a podcast called Bookish, Bookish yeah. where I interview interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most, not their favorites, but the ones that have been most formative to them. And I've already done a couple of seasons, and I'm just halfway through season three, and Garrett Reisman was, is my first guest on the show, and he talks about one of the books that he took to space and why he took it with him and why he needed some light reading matter on the international space station so it's a side note but he's he's wonderful and creative and funny and enormously collaborative and so garrett is on hand often on set but definitely in the writer's room at all times so that the writers can 
write what their wild imaginings are and then Garrett comes in and is like yeah but oxygen doesn't work like that and the space station the, the gravity's not going to let that happen and yeah so he clambers on with the truthfulness of it um and then we have the Okudas who are also uh NASA absolute experts and they literally climb into the rockets and the spaceships and things with us and make sure we know what every single button is and what it would do and all of that so but each one of us varies in our meticulousness you know there are some of us who just go in and are like just authoritatively click things and don't care i'm when it comes to my work enough of a uh, i I like knowing i like research so i i usually go off and like research gravity and stuff like that it shows and, and and thank you and 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 as an as an actor you know what what is it like getting to film this you know where no pennies is spared and you're you know doing these incredible sequences on these amazing sets i mean was it going back to your childhood and being glued to the grace kelly did did you have that moment of like <laughs> here i am and i'm doing it you know i mean it must have i did i had an amazing experience where one night um the spacesuit is a bitch. The spacesuit is just so hard. Yeah. It really is. It's grueling being in that thing. It's really heavy, particularly season one spacesuits where they hadn't quite figured out how to help us out with it yet. Yeah. Um, and it's an exact replica of what was being worn uh, on 1971 on the moon. Wow. So, um, but but the moon is uh, you know one sixth of the world's gravity. So that's a lot. Like it's, it weighs a lot less on the moon than it does on a Sony. So, but there was one night where, um, in season one, I'm lowered into a crater and I, I, they want me to get out and I, it's the mining sequence deeper in order to find water. And so I find ice on the moon. I become the first person to discover water on the moon. And so I'm high, high up. They built a 60 foot styrofoam crater and painted, spray painted it gray. And I'm alone on set. And I've been, uh, I've been the only person working all day and it's late at night. And I'm strapped in a harness and I'm dangling in front of this crater. And there's a giant crane creating moonlight. And there's probably, I don't know, 120 people at my feet all collaborating to get this shot. And I just had this moment of being like, oh, my God, look at what I get to do. I mean, most people are like, I don't know, sitting in traffic with a briefcase beside them, poured over their iPhone or hunched over a laptop. Look at what I get to do for a living. I, I, it was genuinely humbling. It still is. And it's amazing. And thank you for your service. Literally. I mean, it's, it's inspired me and, 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 you know, the, the, the best actors steal and, and I'm stealing from you, you know, you're, you're so incredible. And, and, and talk to me, you know, you got season two, were you guys able to shoot that before the pandemic or did that, you know, talk to me about that experience was, was that at all hurt or was that already done before the pandemic started? Sorry, it cut out. Did you ask me if we were done before the pandemic started? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so, so I know yeah. you, season um, two, we, was that no, affected by the pandemic at all? Yes. So we were um, about to, we had just started shooting episodes nine and 10. And as I say, we block shoot. So we were shooting those together. And we had maybe, a, I think we had like, 14 days left to shoot in order to be done with the whole show. So we were really nearly there and we got shut down. Wow. And so that was in 
February or March, I guess. I'm terrible with dates. Yeah. And then we um and then we waited and waited and then we went back in August and we finished up the show and we got it done. Uh, which was great. And then Apple picked us up almost immediately. And so we went back to work in January of this year on season three. So are you, are you still filming now? Oh yeah. yeah oh, we'll amazing. We'll be filming until the fall. I think we'll, we won't be done until September or something. Oh, I'm going to have to have you come back when it comes out. It's going to, it's going to be incredible, but I, I do want to talk about, you know, thank you for Molly and, and you're, you're so amazing in that show. And, you know, I, I, I just have so much gratitude for your work and I, I, I really do want to talk about your podcast, you know, oh, going back to, to literature and, and, and books, you know, where did the idea for, for this come from? You know, I have, uh, as I as I say, like I'm I have my whole life been this voracious reader, and I love and miss talking about books. That was one of the things that I really loved at Oxford was just the freedom yeah. and uh, to to do that, and not hopefully in any sort of pretentious way, just in that exchange of like I just read something and it's so great, and and this is what made it great, and I I, I miss that. And I am the person that people email to ask what to read next. Like I, I constantly have a list of books to recommend and I'm always sending friends books if I think that they're going to love them or recommendations all the time. And during the pandemic, I read so, so much. I think other people devoured, lots of people devoured TV and movies. I, I just read and read and read. And I came out of the pandemic feeling like I, I want someone to, I want to talk books to people again. I, I miss it. So I went back and, and I'm, now I'm doing season three of the podcast and I have, I just love doing it. I have such interesting guests. It's such yeah. a way to meet people. I'm sure you feel the same way. Totally. I, I, mine is not, um, my, I try and make mine as diverse as possible. So I interview actors, architects, writers, um, physicists, astronauts, uh, the head of TED I have coming on next week. Um, you know, I, I, it's a real, it's a really wide range of people. And the only thing they have in common is hopefully is a love of books and a yeah. willingness to talk about how those books have, have changed them. So if, if you're someone who likes books um, and who someone likes hearing about people's lives, I, I think it's, as I say, it's niche, but it's a really simple podcast and a simple way of talking to people about about how books have what they what books have meant to them and how they've changed them in some way yeah that's incredible and I mean obviously I have to ask you what are the five books that that most shaped you uh well I had my producer interview me when I did I, I saw that on there yeah, the yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> I had him do it so that I could have an experience of what it was to be in in my guest's shoes um one of them is where the wild things are oh, yeah lovely of course Facebook. Um, one of them is Revolutionary Road, book by Richard okay. Gates, yeah. which uh, was seminal for me. Uh, one of them is Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, which is a book, one of the few books I read and reread. Oh, those are the Not best. every year, but probably every other year. Yeah. Um, and one is a collection of short stories called Last Night by James Salter. Oh, great. Uh, I love the shorts. I'm yeah. I'm in Richmond right now, where Edgar Allan Poe is from. So oh, an, wow. another great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 great. yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyway, it's a fun. It's always fun at dinner parties too to just go around and see what people's. I'm. I, I, I think I'm going to be messaging you all the time on DMs. Like, what should I be reading? And uh, you know, I mean, that's, do it. Please yeah. do. I are, love it. Are, I, are you, I often 
I throw things up on Instagram too. I like if there's something that I've really loved, I'll usually photograph it and try and put it out there and stuff. I, I don't want to get too existential here, but do you think that, you know, obviously we're kind of in a weird time where, you know, movies are predominantly dominated by intellectual property and comic book. And, and do you think now TV is the home for great writing? Do you, or do you think there's, I, I do, I see it that yeah. way. And I, yeah. I see that it's been that move for a long time. I think, um, I feel like it's very, very hard. Rare is the great movie these days that yeah. is, small and interesting uh, nomadland felt like a beautiful yeah. and notable exception um but there were there were not not too many that i can think of in recent times that have uh have harnessed what a movie can do and put it there yeah. um i just think there's there's just there's so much out there it's a kind of thrilling time to be an actor. I think it's an even more thrilling time to be a consumer and, and have yeah. this much choice of where to go. I'm, I'm really interested. My um, curiosity is, is what new plays will be coming out because yeah. I'm really interested in, um, I feel like theater uh, is the best place to reflect what it was to live through the pandemic that actually the claustrophobia of a, of a single set um, like if I were to set my mind to it, I would want to write a play about the pandemic, not a movie and not a, and not a TV show. But um, I, it feels like it would best reflect what we've just all lived through. Any any hopes of, of getting a piece from you one day of writing? No, you won't get a play out. You won't get a play out, <laughs> but I am writing a book. Amazing. I am writing a book, so one day that'll be Okay, done. well, you'll be back to talk about it. And- sure. Oh, thank you so much for being on, Sonia. I thank mean, you, it, Ryan. Thank you it, for having me. It's meant so much, and and I'm such a big fan of yours, and and you're you're crushing it. I'm so inspired. Two final questions for you. You know, we were finally coming up for air from what was one of the darkest times in in recent memory, and it was particularly a very tough time for artists of all kinds, mm-hmm. but actors. You know, we witnessed the I don't want to say the death, but the the permanent pause and the indefinite pause of we didn't know when when we might be able to do the thing we love again and particularly we just spoke about theater that's still not back yet you know what what kept you inspired during the pandemic stories stories i couldn't get enough stories in me um uh like i say books and and podcasts i i just i went out into nature every single day i would just park the kids. I only let them have an hour of screens every day. So I would give them their precious screen time and I would plug them in. And then I would plug myself into every podcast I could. There's a beautiful one called Poetry Unbound um, where uh, Padre Gotuma, who's a poet, reads one poem every day and then gives this beautiful little explanation about why he chose it and he unpacks it. So that one kept me going. This American Life, um, uh, you know, oh, a fantastic one called "Things You Were Wrong About." Yeah, with a, a, unpacked all the history of Princess Diana and why how everyone was wrong about her. Like that, from the highbrow to the lowbrow. I just I wanted stories in my ear while I walked in nature. So yeah. that was that was what kept me sane. That's amazing. And 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 final question. And I apologize because I know it's a tough one. But for for all the young, you know, Sonia's out there, similar to myself, that that don't come from parents that have, you know, 
connections to the industry and are wide-eyed and wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and and want to get in this business and are watching you know whatever their respective version of Grace Kelly is right now and and want to pursue this thing any words of wisdom you might have for them yeah oh yes i mean just keep keep loving as many things as you can there's there's such a virtue in in really like opening up the word artist to mean as much as it can so it's not just about that one audition and that but but what is it to live really interrogate what it is to live an artistic life how do you keep feeding that life how do you keep um feeding it from all quarters by going to museums by listening to listening to podcasts by sitting on a train and staying alert to what other people are saying rather than being buried in your phone um, there are stories everywhere and you never know where they might lead you. They never, you never know what character you might create out of them. You never know what short story you might create out of them. But staying both porous and open and watering, watering your artistic landscape in all the ways you can, that would be my advice. That's beautiful. Sonia, it's been such a pleasure. One of the best I've ever had. And, and you're incredible. I'm going to make sure that you get a Golden Globe, an Emmy, <laughs> an Oscar. I'm even going to throw a Grammy your way because you That's, deserve it. Best Grammy. podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. There and go. uh, I got so much love for you and so much gratitude. Thank you for coming on. And, Thank you. And, Thank and, you for having me. And coming on and sharing your journey. And, and please come back when season three comes out. And, and I got so much love for you and, and the best things are yet to come. And I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan, very much. So much love, okay? Thank you. You too. Okay. Talk soon. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.